you like conversation on a variety of topics? Feel like no one wants to talk about the things that interest you? Tired of only hearing the same political, sports, or catastrophe talk? Yeah, we feel that way too. Join two high-functioning geeks as they discuss just about anything under the sun. We can't tell you what we'll be talking about each week because we don't know where our brains will take us. It will be an interesting conversation, though, so hang on and join us. Here comes the Relentless Geekery. Calendars, and and offer that to other people for Zoom, That you know, Alan Skynet. Exactly. You know what's funny? I think I might have mentioned this before. Um, I moved into the attic when Tim, Colleen's son, moved out, and uh, he had really um, made it a crazy place. There was writing all on the ceilings and like what you see from a serial killer kind of, <laughs> well, you know, I didn't want any of that. And so that would they you know, re- repaint it. And right. the you, you don't want like them that. to uh, give them more clues as to your, your exactly that, you know, <laughs> and also some of the strings linking the victims were coming undone. And yeah. so I had to make and when I added my own, I didn't want them to cross over. Right. So anyway, I like the color orange. And so I said, I, you know, let's paint it orange. Well, of course they went and got, safety orange the brightest thing they could and and the the trim is bright green like grasshopper green so i think that tim really was like you know fooling with me that he really thought i'd hate it and instead i really love it (laughs) (laughs) but what's funny is when you're down on the street and you look up on third floor to this kind of it looks like there's a nuclear reactor. It's glowing there. a little. It's like (laughs) glowing and, and you get this like deep hum you know that kind of so i love it up here it's just I, who knows why? Who knows why people have a favorite color? But I've always loved orange because it's got so much energy and it's so optimistic and it's so like I like the flavor orange. I like orange flowers. I, I like all of it. I like tigers. You know what I mean? Halloween so, pumpkins and somehow my my rods and cones are all positioned so that the more orange, the better. <laughs> well, one of the things we found when the kids were younger, they have paint that's chalkboard paint. So you just okay. spray it up on a wall and it's just like a chalkboard. You get chalk and they can write on it and erase it and everything. That's pretty cool. I mean, that's, I love material science like that. When you find out that, you know, this really is like one thing that happened here is they painted it with kills. It was the bright orange version of paint that like you put on overpasses to get rid of graffiti. It's supposed to cover everything and without fail. And yet certain things have leaked through or whatever marker he used, or whatever, you know what I mean? It just even kills, even kills wasn't enough to overcome. So um, one luckily is like a peace sign. I don't think it's an unpeace sign, you know, because he had all, <laughs> he just, Tim was a very interesting guy, brilliant artist, but what he tended to do was draw macabre things, like things with eye stalks and big teethy mouths and stuff like that. And he just saw the world in a, in a very different way. He was um, and the reason I say he was is because he passed away like four years ago. Now. Right. Um, he went to school for monster movie makeup and was really good at it. But, and this is, I guess many artists have this, right? Being a commercial artist is very different than just letting your imagination go and doing things. And so he had quite an impressive body of work, but to be told, okay, now you're going to do a werewolf that's partially decaying. He hated it. He hated that assignment. He hated authority, or at least indicated by he didn't get those things done. He really couldn't. Like I said, being a commercial artist is you have to be willing to be creative kind of on demand. He didn't like it. He just. That's one of the things uh, they say a lot. You know, a lot of people like to say, you know, this is my passion. It's my hobby, my love, my life. Well, when you turn it into your business, you kill it. 
that you don't enjoy it. And I, I you know, a lot of people have that. And I know exactly. the, the, the macabre thing, my daughter was like that too, always drawing the, the weird and offbeat and the spooky and things that you're a little gruesome. But I've also read that that's a sign, one of the signs that uh, of intelligence, that intelligent people tend to do that, just like tend to clutter uh, instead of organized. You know, it's funny because when I see someone that's like super organized, I'm like, oh, well, I guess you're not that smart, huh? <laughs> and I know that's a horrible <laughs> thing to do, but it's got to be the opposite. If, if smart, intelligent, high IQs, typically are cluttered if you're not you know and and that's nothing against anybody right it's Does just it work you know in the in the in indicator and then and the negative indicator you yeah know? And like having and, it work but not having it does it mean the other that, well, that, but, okay okay yeah. but there you go which one's the negative indicator it depends on your perspective true enough i mean i i tend so it's funny i i am a cluttered person but I, it's not that i don't know where things are you know, Colleen and I both, maybe this is why one of the reasons that we don't grate on each other is we kind of have a stacking system that there's a chronology, if you will, to things. And you can almost always remember, well, it's not anywhere in the house. I last used it at this table. So it's in one of these three stacks. And it's weird <laughs> to say the word stacks, but that really does. Got it. It, it isn't like someone's going to move in here and, and think I'm crazy. As they go through, they'll say, oh, this was indeed the travel pile and this was the puzzles pile and this was the Mensa pile and whatever else it might be. And, and like goes with like, and it's, it's just, it hasn't been hard for me to have a lot of things going on and still keep them relatively segregated only once in a while. And people talk about this, you know, that it, you don't want to touch a piece of paper more than once, but sometimes what will happen is you'll get interrupted while you're doing something and you'll just put it down. Yeah. The people who lose their keys all the time, or they find them in the icebox because they came in and got a cold drink. And for whatever reason, they just let go of the keys. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and, you know, I, I was thinking about that, too. Um, I, I do that a lot. I have really had to make a very conscious effort and thinking to leave my computer glasses on my desk to make sure my reading glasses are in the case and in one of the reading spots. I, I, I'm not like I always have to have it in this one spot. I'm like, OK, there's a couple places I read. So it's either uh, in the bedside stand or. You know, I put it on the bureau downstairs, you know, just a couple spots. And I've had to really work on that. And a lot of the other things I kind of gave up. But it's I've thought, you know, that absent minded professor thing. And I've thought, well, oh, maybe I'm getting dementia. Maybe I'm losing my mind, just getting older. What it really I've discovered, what it really is, is I've got 50 things going on. And there's like five that are high priority and a couple that are low priority to me. What I'm carrying in my hand is like the lowest priority. So my brain doesn't even pay attention to it because I've got other things I think about and I'll just set them down. And it never even is a conscious, my brain registers that. It's, it's just down to the next thing. Exactly yeah. That. It's thinking, so Colleen has that a little bit too, that she really does put things down kind of when she's done with them, instead of putting them away, if you will, in the place that they go. And most of the time, it's like, if you're in the kitchen, you put something down in the kitchen, it didn't wander into the basement. You know, so most of the time it's findable. What I've discovered is, and we use the term priority, I think it really is a matter of that to me. Life is about the 80-20 rule. You know what I mean? <laughs> if I pay attention to the 20% most important things, the other 80 in so many cases just don't matter. So right. if I pay attention to where do the bills go so that I can pay them, where's my medical stuff so I can take my pills, that's the stuff that matters. And whether my socks go in the top or the bottom drawer, it so much doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Right, right. <laughs> I'm laughing. It's funny you say that because Gina's not cluttered is the same. It is in a way, but hers is different. 
she will say, well, these clippers need to go in the drawer. But the problem is every time she takes them out, she puts them in a different drawer somewhere else. It could be the drawer over there. It could be the drawer in the bathroom, could be the drawer in the kitchen. And so everything does get put somewhere, but it's always a different spot. So we're looking for something. Sometimes it's like, well, where's why not? It's in a drawer, but there's no drawer. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, I'm I'm lucky. I really have that organizing gene. Like one of the reasons that you become a collector, or when you're a collector, you kind of realize you have to manage your collections. Like things go on the shelf with like with like. They go by author name or they go by series or they go by um, science fiction versus, you know, uh, crime fiction or whatever like it be. But it's it really matters to me that I if I want to find something quickly that I can find it instead of just it's kind of like and when you're a computer person, you learn how do various different sorts work. It isn't a matter of taking things and looking for A and putting it in A. There's quicker ways to do it with you know the bubble sort versus the quick sort versus the merge sort and stuff like that. And when you learn that about data in general, I've adopted that into my life. When I wanted to like sort my bookshelves, you you do like you do a sort of each bookshelf so that those sets are sorted. And then you can do, well, I can pick amongst the things because I know that all the A's are going to be here on the far left and I can displace enough books on the top shelf. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> it, it's an, and, and when you're part of the way through, it's a reasonable state to leave things in because sometimes we have many, many bookshelves getting everything in order. Isn't necessarily an hour's task. So you don't want it to be that you come back and say, I got to start all over. This doesn't look like anything. No, instead, you know, that there's information, there's sorting in, in integrated into each of the sets of things. And all you're doing then is joining sets and taking your time right. as to which set you're working. So Many of my things are like that. Like I said, kind of the piles. If I look and see there's mail that I should handle, even the mail gets into, you know, here's things I know just from looking at it. These are tickets I should take out of an envelope. This is a bill that I should mind. Other things are like all the junk mail that comes in. I'm surprised I even keep it in a stack instead of immediately feeding it into the shredder because I kind of want to give it one second worth of attention, maybe 10, but not a minute. And so always... I'm always doing that kind of stuff. You know what I mean? When I go on a, we love travel. What do I do? I make sure that I gather the maps for the states we're going to be going through. And the reason you can do that is because the maps always go in one place and they don't necessarily have to be in alphabetical order. Though my instinct is towards that. You know what I mean? (laughs) And it's also like, do I put them in order on the basis of states? Like as if we're in the United States? No, because that's not how I would look for something. It really should be like, you know, what is it, uh, Alabama to Wyoming? Is that, is that the, you know, farthest and nearest in Alabama, I guess? So the things that I want to be able to do, and like, you know, I used to keep my books in really perfect order, kind of, so that I could take a book off the shelf if I wanted to reread it. That really doesn't happen that often. You take a book off the shelf so I can let a friend borrow it. That doesn't happen that often. And the big disruptive event, when, when I moved from Hoffman Estates out to, to San Francisco to do my dot-com things, and... All my stuff went into storage and relatively well boxed. This really was like AA to AL in this box. (laughs) AA to AD. I have so many books or comics or whatever that, but then maintaining the collection, making sure that I was out going out to visit my storage lockers in Hercules and putting that year's acquisitions of books or comics or whatever. It didn't happen. (laughs) I didn't do it. And then that kind of breaks the session over things having to be perfectly ordered. But what's happened now, I'm 20 years in Cleveland, and I have the new stuff I've acquired is kind of ordered, but not anywhere near as well as it could be, and it's never been integrated into the old collection. So, wonderful segue, I've been out to the vaults. The comic books are finally getting all sorted, but it used to be 
that what I would do is every year I had my collection A to Z, really absolutely perfect. And I would go through and, you know, take everything in alphabetic order of my new acquisitions and integrate the A's into the A boxes and then keep moving things forward and add boxes at the end towards Zville and that kind of stuff. And I haven't done that in a long time. So I kind of have like four different collections based on sets of things. And now, even though I'm going through them, what I'm doing is I'm not putting everything perfect A to Z. I have numbered boxes. I'm up to number one, C125, comics 125. <laughs> and in my computer system, I have what's in which box. So if I had to find Ghost Rider number one, it doesn't, you don't go to the G box anymore, but you just go onto the computer and look. Oh, that's, yes. you know what I mean? That's, that's what I was going to say. That's exactly what I had to do because you get a box full and then you're like, well, damn, now I've got 20 more comics. Where do they go in here? Well, I got to move this to a different box. So I, I did the same There's thing. ripple effects. There's overhead yeah. that you and don't want to do necessarily. Exactly. Every week, every month. Well, heck, I'm spending an hour, two hours of my weekend trying to put all the new comics in there. So I was like, wait a second. What if the boxes just held them, but the organization was in my spreadsheet, my database, whatever I was using? I'm like, well, that's great. I can look it up. It just tells me where to go get it. And I'm that's like, right. duh, that's perfect. <laughs> Honestly, again, what do you learn from doing computer things? You know, we're not the first people in the world that had to organize something. There's all the things, and then there's an index into those things, and the index is what matters. That information about right. information, the metadata, and so you know, for just that. Hopefully, all geeks that are listening to this, they know about this kind of stuff. But that's kind of what you need, and it's not only about books; it's pretty much about everything, right? That that uh, the, long ago there was a very cool program early for the Macintosh called HyperCard. Oh yeah. Uh, one of the original developers of the Mac had made this cool thing. Bill Atkinson, I believe, was his name. I hope I get his name right because he, he did wonderful work. And it was really based on that, that as things came into your life, you didn't have to integrate it into existing things. You just had to keep track of where it went, what box it was, what room it is, whatever else it might be. And maybe that was then the germ of an idea of I can do virtual collecting. You know what I mean? And and it it has really worked out well that way. Yeah. One of the interesting things is I, it used to be that I just had a big collection, a big spreadsheet, and I, and I didn't have, if you will, the master database out in the world to compare it to. So I had to make sure, and this is its own discussion, we always talk about this, like I really went by, um, every comic book has an, an indicia, right? The little block of text in the usual you know, first page bottom that says, here's what the real title is. It might say that it's the Daring Adventures of Supergirl on the cover, but it's really called Supergirl. And, and there was all kinds of, um, I had to break ties all the time with that. Is that everybody else is going to be looking for this as um, uh, Dr. Strange, but actually there was Dr. Strange and there was Dr. Strange Sorcerer Supreme and there was Dr. Strange versus spelled right. out doctor. And so I said, well, I kind of want to group all those together, but perfectly alphabetically, they'll get over the place. So I have anomalies in my collection that are based on if I really was going to read all my Dr. Stranges, I don't want to go looking for you know, America's hero, Dr. Strange, you know, it's, it doesn't belong in the A's. You know what I mean? <laughs> so. that, that's, that's where I've sometimes used things like a tag. Uh, and I do that with my to-do list uh, because I've got multiple things that cross over. Like it might right. be for the website, but it's, I'm programming something uh, using Python for the website, but it's not for my fiction book. It's for uh, this. Other thing. So it's three different things I have put together, whereas another thing might be a one and two different. So I use tags so I can say, okay, what's everything to do with Python programming? What's everything to do with my uh, author website? And, and it pulls them I up. I do that more. And in fact, for a while I was maintaining that where I, some things that I had had uh, boxed, uh, sorry, bagged and boarded and graded, 
I kind of put notations about that. Now my new the collection software that I'm using now called Collectors does all yes. that for you. And so I, I'm pleased that I don't have to do that anymore, but I kind of miss that what mattered to me was what I used for tags, not what matters to the general public. And it's not always different, but sometimes it is. You know what I mean? If I really, I like Doc Savage. And so if I really wanted to have somewhere a way of saying not only Doc Savage in the comics, but every appearance of him that he was in Marvel 2 and 1 at one point. Right. And that way of going in, one of the things that the collector software has done, I think I might have mentioned, they stopped carrying price information, which is yeah. really a blow because when yeah. I got a certain amount, um, I can't, I, I've added 5,000, 6,000 comic books since then, but I really don't know what that's added to the value of the collection. Well, what they have put in is a thing with major and minor keys. You know, that that's oh, a concept, I guess, for I books and especially that. for comics. You know, it's a key issue if, oh, it's the first appearance of a character. It's a costume change for the character. It's the death of a character. It's the wedding. They, they and out of, I have 32,000. I've cataloged 32,000 now. I think I'm going to make it 40. I thought I might be at 35, but I think I'm going to be 40. Wow. And I have like 4,700 keys, you know, like major and mostly minor, but lots of major. And it's kind of fun to go through like, Giant Size Chillers, which was kind of a one-off. It was, uh, they actually changed the title to Giant Size Dracula because Dracula was the breakout character, if you will. But it's the first appearance of Lilith, who then went on to figure into all kinds of horror superhero crossover type stuff. Right. And you don't always know. So we've laughed about, you know, where did Moon Knight first appear? Not in Moon Knight number one. Werewolf by Night. <laughs> Werewolf by Night number 27 or something weird. And so it's kind of cool to have that ability to tap into that, to be able to find things if I really needed to for where did um like everybody knows you know where did wolverine first appear like hulk 181 but no it's really hulk 180 that last panel shows him and so there's even you know what i mean it, it's and it's i've got cool. that issue because <laughs> it's it's an alpha flight tie-in also there you go exactly and, I, and that's i i i haven't gotten to those yet because those are some of the ones that are actually down in my basement that i haven't brought to the storage lockers and at my last set I have two more boxes of the storage lockers, and I have the last stuff that I have in my basement, and that'll be all my collection. Wow. So far as I know, I'm pretty <laughs> sure that nothing got, I never mislabeled comic book boxes. I never really let anything get lost in that way. But we'll see. We'll yeah, see that, yeah. you know, when I, I just had this happen. I, I'm going through, you know, I, you can't put comic books into a box without making sure that they're all tight and lined up, or they slump over, and then you get weird bending and folding and harm. Yeah. So I found that I had put, various comic books that I don't really collect in with other things. And so when I got to the end of this particular run of the alphabet, I had um, Our Army at War and Star Spangled War Stories and Little Lotta and other things I must have gotten just as, you know, kind of a comic book grab bag or somebody gave me some comics, not knowing if they're worth anything. But I've discovered things like Coverless Green Lantern. You know, they're not worth anything. An incomplete comic is worth virtually nothing on the market. But a reading copy of Green Lantern, like number 13, what? Green Lantern number 13? Yeah, that's pretty nice. cool. You know? So yeah. I, I discovered some minor treasures, and it was fun to go back to. Not I really have been obsessive about knowing what's in each box, and, and just this is now the final cataloging. It was fun to go back to that time of, huh, treasure. I didn't really know I had this. You're and still like, discovering and having, yeah. I'm still discovering cool things I didn't know I had, and nothing in great shape. You know, they really were in that kind of oddments file for a reason yeah and yet wow finding something that's 60 years old and i'm 62 that's pretty freaking cool yeah. you know yeah. what i mean yeah. so <laughs> hey uh two things before i forget um colin told me to tell you that if you 
uh, once you get to the point where you're willing to sell or whatever, Adam would be more than willing to take a look and give you an overall offer. I said, I, you know, Alan might want to sell them all. He knows what the values are. And Colin said, I understand that. But if he doesn't want to spend three years selling everything off piecemeal and just like, what's it done and done? And Adam is probably one of the best ones I've you know, met as far as what he offers you for what it's worth. And he'll tell you, look, it's worth this much. I'll give you this much for it right now out the door. And I was like, well, you know, Alan has a lot. Well, Adam uh, last year bought a like $35,000 comic book collection. So he just paid for it. So uh, it it could be something to think about if you don't want to spend so much time and effort, because then you got to figure up your time, your shipping costs. And that's what I did with mine. I said, Adam, what do you offer me for this? It's worth this much. And he offered me a good chunk of that. And I'm like, great. Cause maybe I won't sell one or two of them. And then I don't make all that money anyway. So I was like, good with it. So I was just told to pass that along. If you ever want to talk about it. And he says, no hard feelings, no pressure. If you don't want to, no big deal. Um, yeah, I, I really do appreciate that. It, it's, it's nice to have um, a connection, someone that actually will like kind of be on your side, you know, any right. number of comic book stores that I would just walk in. I think they're okay because comic book stores by definition is a person that's in love with the industry, the medium. Adam knows a lot of them and I've heard some bad things about others. So, And I I guess that that does sort of amount of worry that this is an odd thing to say. I really might be, um, would he have the money that I would need? I have millions of dollars. I I know. I'm not sure (laughs) how much, you know, know he may may only say, well, still millions of dollars. Exactly. I totally get that. I mean, you're approaching <laughs> South B auction house type level here. That, but the problem is you, you've probably only got a couple that actually would go to something like South B's. So, you know, that, that's also something he's like, look, if, if he takes the five ones that are worth a million each or whatever, and then we have the rest of the collection and it's only worth 30,000 and he offers you so much. He's like, just, he's like, just give me a call. We can discuss yeah, it. Yeah. And, and again, if it turns out that it's not going to work, it's not going to work. You know, it's just business. I understand. It's, it is, it is like, it's kind of funny. If you don't mind talking about it a little bit in my mind, it hasn't, at first it was like, well, I'll just go to heritage auctions and they'll back up the truck and give, get, get everything out of my house. And it'll be, you know, I'm going to get a certain amount as they sell things over the course of time. But I'm also aware from using the, you know, my collector software that 20% of my <clears throat> collection is worth anything to anyone. $10 and above, let's say. So that means I've got, you know, 8,000 comics that I'm going to sell and make all my money out of. Right. The 20 rule. It's kind of funny. And the other are, wow, I'd like these to go to a good home. If someone wants all the ROM space nights that are not a big thing for anybody else, but I'd like them to go to someone that I guess that appreciates them. But how much time am I willing to do to spend right. 32,000 comics out of 40 of little eBay sales and little onesies and twosies right. and even complete runs of things? That's the why I sold 100 comic books today. Okay, you only have thirty-one thousand, you know, nine hundred. Right. You know what I mean? It's, and and, and that's the other thing too. Yeah. Colin, Colin <laughs> has been doing some buying a little bit, and like someone will bring in a long box, and he'll flip through it, and he's like, "These are all dollar comics or less." Uh, yeah. And then he found the first appearance of Constantine. Uh, I forget which, whatever it was. And he's like, "Oh, one thing, maybe like uh, it was thirty-nine or something like that." that. It? Yeah, part, part of the early in American Gothic, I think maybe. Anyway. Okay, so he said he told the guy he's like, look. "I'm such a geek. I'm such a geek." Okay, <laughs> he's like, you know, look, everything in this box is pretty worthless. 
uh, you know, I, I'd give you a couple bucks for it, essentially. But this one is worth some money. He says, in the shape it's in, I would grade it about a 2.5, which would make it worth about this much. So I could offer you for this one comic this much, or it was $10 more for the whole box. For the whole box. You know, exactly. so the, yeah, you're right. Uh, you know, if you pulled out the thousand biggest comics, those are the ones he'd be interested in. The rest, he probably wouldn't even care. But he might say, well, those thousand and these I'd offer this much. But again, you have such a big collection. It's not something that has to be all or nothing either way. You know, he might even say, look, I, I, you know, you don't want to sell it all great, but I really like those five, you know, or whatever. And then what I think a lot is not only first cherry picking the collection to make sure that I get best value out of the things that really are like, wow, it's old and it's 9.8, you know, that kind of stuff. And then there's a certain amount of, get them the, maximize the value that I can for people that they don't need a 9.8 copy, but it's still 9.0. And that's still worth someone who's trying to fill in gaps in their collection or upgrade the collection goes, they've got as a six, five or something like that. Right. And then I thought, wow, my collection could, be, could become a comic book stores tables. You know what I mean? If all the rest of those dollar comics that I might have, if I just get kind of what I put into it, you know what I mean? I think that collector's software is really cool and that it generates all kinds of statistics. You know, here's your major minor keys. And I think it says cover price wise, what I've invested is like $55,000, which is like, yeah, you nut. You spent $55,000. on that's over 50 some years. But you know what I mean? Anybody who doesn't value comic books has got to be thinking, that's a a down payment on a house. That's a car. And yet out of $55,000, I've made millions. That's a pretty good return over the course of 60 years. So I, 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 and often while I was buying, I was buying from a comic book club in college that I got like a little discount, 10%. And then I was buying from a buying service, M&M distributors, hats off to them. They're the best ones I've ever worked with. Um, And I was getting like 20 to 40% discount, depending on how much I was buying and and whatever they were offering at the time. So if I just get cover price, I've kind of already made 40%. And I'm like, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm betraying my investing strategy of like, you know, I really would never sell anything for less than cover price. Like you're saying, that goes in the dollar box. If I paid 225, something deep in my heart says, I'm not taking less than cover price. It isn't worth less than what I bought it. It's gently read. It's in mint condition. It can't be that it's only worth half of what I bought it for, even though, of course, it probably is. Somewhere, yeah. I bought so many things, hundreds of dollars worth a month, all of my life, that it can't be that everything increased in value. And yet... Some part of me is just stubborn and I'd rather hold on to it and reread it than sell it at a loss. Yeah. I just my stocks. I, I'm, I haven't sold anything at a loss despite the difficulties of the last year because I expect it to come back or I just won't. I just well, won't do it. <laughs> you know, I've started more and more of this way of thinking is, okay, I'm 50 years old. How much time do I want to put into whatever this is? When I was 20, I would have put a lot more time into just reading anything and getting a book and okay, it kind of sucks, but I'm going to finish it. Now I'm kind of like, okay, this book sucks. I'm not wasting any more time reading it. Right. The opportunity cost of continuing to read it is high compared to there's a wonderful universe of better stuff. out. Yeah, exactly. And And, uh, I was going to say, you mentioned collectors. Um, And that's, we we talked a little bit about this. This is connected a little offshoot um, with the, the new modern, software and all that collectors is a perfect example because when i first started using it it was you buy it 
And that was pretty much it. You bought the app and used it. If you wanted right. the next version with the updates and stuff, you bought the next version. You bought the yearly upgrade or whatever. They've exactly. totally switched that to where it's a yearly subscription fee and you access it all through the cloud. They have an app, but right. the app won't work if you don't have the subscription fee to the cloud. Exactly. And so many things are going that way where it's all cloud-based. There's good and bad, obviously. Yeah. I really like it in some cases because though I'm not buying new, I like the fact that they're continually updating the data that's in there. Yeah. So like when they added the major and the minor keys thing, I would have been willing to pay for that upgrade. And the fact that it's just included as part of keeping your subscription current, it really matters to me that I know I'm current as, as current as can be. The biggest thing about collectors is that they really don't have current pricing information. You know, whatever right. API they were using from who they say it was, uh, Go Comics, I think. Yes, yes, yes. Go Comic, and they decided to, to do their own. They have enough valuable metadata that they didn't need to kind of make it they made it so that it's more exclusive to them and i don't know like right now comic base which i used for a long time has its own database of values and so forth and i really i'm going to have to do something like do the big export from collectors and run it into comic base just to get a good value for my comic book, and then go to the various different auction sites and stuff like that and say well here's what the market says this is worth and you know what I mean? Am I going to do a reserve price? Am I going to do, there's a whole set of skills, set of a bunch of knowledge that I have to gain about how to do this, how to do it price-wise, how to do it, like who's honorable. You know what I mean? I don't want to deal with certain people if they're known for being the, the scum of the industry. Right. Well, like don't go eBay. The first, first ones calling me is, you know, hey, I'll take that collection off your hands and then ghost. You know what I mean? I'm, right. I'm my One of my big dilemmas right now, I think we might've talked about this is I'm, I, I need to get these uh, graded and sending them away is fraught with danger. You know what I mean? If the post office covers like $5,000 and I got a book that's worth 50K, I, I can't. I can't risk that happening. So what's the insurance that I'm going to buy that especially covers transit, not sitting in my warehouse, which is the vaults are safe. Yeah. They're impregnable to harm. They're out of water, all that kind of stuff. But it's that transition back and forth to either Texas or Florida that I really need to make sure that these guys are covered. And, and it's not cheap, but it's going to be necessary in order to get Know that twenty percent of value. So I've already, you know, the collection not only has hey the collection's gone up, it's got embedded expenses for having been in the vaults and whatever I did to get the collector software and stuff like that, and that's a small part of the overhead. But now, wow, now I got to add insurance to that. How much right. insurance am I going to have to pay for it? And so it's just it really is like a business. You really have to say what are it. It's not just a hobby. It's not just a silly thing anymore. How much am I willing to invest to maximize the value of this? How smart do I need to be? How naive I don't want to be. You know what I mean? It's like right. especially if you had this all your life, it 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 really is um important to me that I kind of uh, ooh, yeah. this was a true hypothesis that these will go up in value. And if I keep them in good condition, hey, I get to go to Europe. You know what I mean? I get I, I sell like silly comics three times. Yeah, yeah, multiple times. With your own house. <laughs> yeah. And and what you were saying about the opportunity cost. Colleen and I, we're getting ready to retire. We're getting ready to start traveling. Do I want to be hiking in the Grand Canyon or do I want to be at home tending my comic book collection? Right. To me, there is no choice. So what do I do to get to where I'm really free and clear of my biggest, you know, possessions possess you if you let them. And I am getting to the point of, I don't want that to be really from anything. It's time for the comic books to like a, a big push these next couple of years to get that done so that in between selling comic books, Colleen and I can go just yeah. stay in Boston for a month. 
and right. hit the museums and the, and the art galleries and you know what I mean? And go to Washington, D.C. for a month and go to New York for a month and go see some plays on Broadway. And we have really cool travel plans for, you know, establishing a residency, not just, hey, we're going to be here for a week. Let's see all that we can. But being able to get an Airbnb and stay where you can actually make some of your own meals and do your own laundry and, and be in a residential instead of a clamory type place. And there's at least 20 cities that we'd like to do that, not just in the United States, but like, how about Toronto? How about Rome? How about London? How about Sydney? You know what I mean? When you start looking at that kind of thing, and then, and this, uh, again, I'm, I'm, oh, it's segue time again. <laughs> I, I've been a really cool movement called FIRE. FIRE. Financial independence, retire early. And early doesn't really apply to us anymore. We're both in our 60s. But so many of <laughs> the principles of save a bunch of money, invest it wisely, let the compounding effect of investments work for you, and then you buy your freedom. You buy all the time of not having to work anymore. And so what's the block of money that we need? Well, selling comic books, to go back for a moment, really does help to throw money into that big hopper right. of, now if I just make, um, you have a big block of money, you take 4% out a year, you'll never go broke. You know what I mean? 95% of the people who follow that rule of, of four, if you will, they live off of those expenses. We have to find out what our real expenses are, but like we're living in a relatively reasonable cost city. Um, inflation doesn't affect our expenses anymore that affects my investment. So that's, you know what I mean? It's kind of a wash and, that, and that's like provably so, not just wishful thinking. So getting to that block of money that we want so that we really can between social security and pensions, we already have a lot of our expenses covered. And then it's like, well, if we take 4% out a year, it isn't even just that's so that we can put food on the table. That's so that we can go on these cool trips. You know what I mean? So I find an Airbnb, not for a hundred dollars a night and spend $3,100 in a month, but find it for a thousand or something like that. And, and it just makes all that Colleen and I have never been big foodies. And so if we end up in our Airbnb, we have nice dinners, but we cook it ourselves instead of going out to dinner and having $150 worth of food cost a day. You know what I mean? It's like, where do I want to put my stuff into the cool exhibit at the museum? Not yet another, this kind of yet another steak dinner. I don't even want to eat steak every night. I, that's not even in my, right. my, my paradise. You know what I mean? I, right, I, right. I so a couple of good books, one called Quit Like a Millionaire. There's there's probably four good ones that are about people who've really done this and like retired successfully at 31 because right. they really did live lean, do without for the first 10 years of their career. And there's some things about them that I don't know that we're ready to do. They do one thing is like geography arbitrage. You know, living in Cleveland is less expensive than lots of the rest of the United States. But you know what's really cheap? Living in Portugal, living in Vietnam. Yes living in Ecuador. And, and I don't know that we want to go to a place where English is not the main language because I'm willing to learn, but 60s is a little bit late to get fluent. You know what I mean? I don't want to go to any place that, well, the reason it's cheap is because it's also dangerous. Right. I, don't, I want to go to like, where's the stable? I, oh, I'm older and I've had some, I need, I need to know I have good medical care. You know, I don't, I don't want it to be, hey, um, atrial fibrillation, well, we, we we think we've heard of that. <laughs> I know I want. Wait, wait, like, let me Google it. <laughs> yes, exactly. Of Hold on. We got to go across town where the only Wi-Fi is to Google it. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And what I'm finding out is, you know, boy, uh, though I, the world really is first and second and third world in many ways, but money is a great enabler for being able to get, even in countries where there's um, it, not everyone is doing well, if you live in a relatively major city and, and keep yourself safe, money goes further there. And so it really might be that we end up doing, hey, how about a month in Italy? 
You know what I mean? That by being in Rome for a month, it's cheaper than living in the United States, even though it's Rome with the Parthenon and the steps and the, you know what I mean? That kind of thing. And like this, London is not, it's more expensive. So as we think about, you know, wow, are, are we really, we, we're, we're talking about how we're going to do this and how much are we really willing, fighting all that is, I really don't want to be rootless, nor does Colleen. We really, I just wrote a post about, it. I was out in California for just, you know, a, a couple of weeks taking care of business for my, my father who has passed. And coming home, it was amazing how much I just took deep breaths of relief over it's my bed and my shower with the right water pressure. And the kitchen is how I want it set up. And here's the couch that we get to sit next to while we watch our silly show and cuddle instead of two recliners where there's no contact. And it just is, I don't know that we can duplicate that everywhere that we go. And I think that being out of town will be a series of, wow, this really was cool to see all this and do the history and do the art. But you know what? I kind of want to go home. Right. You know, my my local pizza and my, you know, <laughs> my my burners on the stove. That, and that's, that they look just like they should. Here's the it's also the <laughs> partly what the, the whole fire thing uh advocates is you know like you said looking at the cost looking at the balance looking at what you give up what you get and which is the important thing and focusing on the important thing uh it's funny you say that because we just watched a video gina showed me last night some tv show that they put a tiktok video on whatever but she was like horrified because this family the way they live she was like dear god i'm i i feel like i should call child services and report them for child abuse and i i argued against her she got irritated because i didn't just jump on and agree i said hold on what are they really doing so what it was is they didn't use their electricity they had lanterns with uh batteries that they used and they didn't use their electricity they didn't have a refrigerator to use electricity they had it outside dug into the ground and just had a small amount of food so it wouldn't last long and spoil. It's 55 degrees underground. And so that's enough. Yes. Exactly. Okay. Okay. So, and, and she's going, well, this is horrible. The, the couple of things that really got her and one of them, I was like, okay, maybe not that much, but they would only take a bath once a week and do it like in the old days where they'd fill up the tub once and everybody'd share it. Yeah. And, and I was like, yeah, that's a little gross. I don't know if I'd want to do that uh, with the whole family. Uh, but considering I'm the guy, I'd be first anyway. So it, I, I was like, I don't care. Um, but I'm like, that's what they used to do. I mean, even back in my mother's time when she was younger, they did that. So you can't turn say, oh, that's child abuse and all this. The one thing they did do that I was like, okay, that's is they didn't buy toilet paper. They used crumpled up newspaper. See, yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure about that one. That's right. <laughs> You know, everything is along a spectrum. And I think that you don't have to go from like spending ridiculously to spending nothing. You know, there really are those very different trade-offs that are quality of life that are just like modern civilization has found better ways to do that than going back to living as if you're in the 1860s in a, in a sodbuster house. You just <laughs> don't have to do that. Hey, and, and it's a matter, the of, dust bowl it's again. a matter of, of cleanliness and of disease. You know what I mean? There really yeah. are reasons. Boy. I was in SCA, the Society for Creative Anachronism, when I was in college. And there were any number of people that used to talk about how they kind of wish, oh, if we had a good nuclear exchange, we'd go back to these better times of everything being about nobility and everything, you know, we, we, have, a, we have our vintner, we have our blacksmith, we could have our own community. It's like, this is back when life expectancy was 32. Right. It, was, it was nasty, brutish, and short. It was 
horrible to live in these times in terms of diseases and animals and whatever else it might be. So don't be so quick to abandon civilization. Yeah, people, people you know? romanticize that a lot. And <laughs> exactly. uh, quite often I've heard pointing out, well, don't forget, like you said, they only lived the 32. They usually didn't have teeth. Everybody smelled like the, the, the horse stall. You know, so really don't romanticize it necessarily. Um, the, uh, the, I told her, I said, you know, I lived like that uh, when I was camping, and, you know, backpacking for two weeks. She's like, well, that's different. That's, I'm like, the point is, you don't, you know. It's not it's, undoable. It's a, a yeah. choice. And you decide, you know, it's, if anything, one of the things that we're getting about the fire discussion is like, we, we really, we entertain ourselves well. You know what I mean? We like going to our shows. COVID, the last couple of years, have absolutely shown us that we're not like going crazy. We're not depressed right. because we haven't been to as many comedy shows and Playhouse Square plays and live music. As much as we love that, we really can do without if we have to. And so that thought of, well, how much do we have to do without? Again, it's not zero or 100. If we give up 50% of what we used to do, and that means that we get that many more, that much more freedom, that much more money right. to apply to other things, to, to safety and to whatever else it might be, it's kind of cool to have had these COVID years as a forced lesson about we are not unhappy people just because we couldn't go to see, you know, a comedy show every week. We're doing just fine, actually. Right, <laughs> you know what I mean? right. As long as you have books, as long as you and the and, internet at home, you know what I mean? And like, again, you know, it's a balance. I, I, I questioned why they live like that, why they're because she said, oh, I save uh, doing all these measures. And it wasn't an ungodly amount. It wasn't like, oh, we're saving 30000 a year or something. It was a couple thousand dollars. I'm like, is that worth it? I'm like, okay, but we don't know the whole story. This is a snippet. I, I said, first of all, I would question if everybody in the family has a, a lantern with batteries, what's worse for the environment? Building a big place that gives electricity to lots of people or everybody carrying lanterns with batteries that are harmful, which is worse. Right. Second, Eventually they do lose charge. And then what do yeah. you do with the remains? Exactly. Right. Okay. And, and which does cost more. If you've got five people in your family and you're buying batteries so often every month that you're $50, $60 in batteries, well, you could turn on the electricity a few times and save some of those batteries, you know, right. but but I said, I told her, I said, well, why are they doing it? Is it because they're out of work? They're disabled. They can't work. Or do they just choose not to? And think of this. They're home with their kids all the time. They make dinners with their kids. She also turned her nose up because they were outside with washing bins, washing the clothes by hand. I'm like, okay. my mother did that. You know, we've had to do it when we lost electricity and didn't have the washer or whatever. You, and every now and then, yeah. you know, we, we choose not to use the dryer and hang stuff up sometimes. <laughs> So, right. you know, yes, it seems extreme, but I don't think they're like over the top or abusing their children. <laughs> yeah. I, you know, all you have to do is read a little bit of history and, and, um, and you get enlightened, if you will. What's been the best thing to in, enhance um, lifestyle at wrong, um, just age in general? Um, it's public health. It's though we have a miracle of antibiotics and medical treatment and so forth. Public health of where your water is guaranteed clean and your your dirt doesn't have, you know what I mean? Um, the more that we've gotten better about fluoridating and iodizing and various different things that overall stop people from getting their teeth rotting out of their heads, stop people from getting, uh, name the um, nutritional diseases. Nobody gets beriberi anymore. Rickets. Nobody gets scurvy. Nobody gets rickets because we fixed all that. So 
going back to a place where you might not do that, depending on what you're eating, how much what you can raise on your land. If there's no way on your land to get the right amount of iodine, then you're in danger. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and the what has delivered into people's lives the most time back to do other things than just work from dawn till dusk and drop exhausted and get up the next day and do it. It's things like the sewing machine. It's things like the washing machine. It's things that even after we were relatively civilized, and this is especially women's work, was often a terrible imposition on their ability to do anything but that work if they were going to be a, a, a pioneer family. Colleen could tell you all about this from reading not only the Laura Ingalls Wilder books, but just that's what civilized the world, the Sears catalog that brought <laughs> little motors so that everybody could do more than an ox pulling a plow. The through. Wells Fargo oh, wagon. Exactly that. And how you're getting water from a well and every other way in which we've been able to add to human labor to make things work better, faster, smarter. You don't want to give those things up if you don't have to. So the romance of I like solar and wind powered drying hanging over a clothesline. But if you do that for a family of eight, that's all you're doing is the wash day in and day out. Like, when do you get a chance to make your life better? When do you get a chance to read or to teach your children to read? When do you get a chance to make music and learn, teach others how to make, you know what I mean? It's just people romanticize that, but the the trade-offs that we've made for those kinds of things and making it so the world is more civilized that we actually Leisure time out of let's how many well, 10,000 years of civilization, leisure time is like the little bar at the far fucking end. Considering <laughs> considering a few not, of the not. things in the past couple of years and especially what's happening now, I, I'm I'm thinking our civilization has digressed some. That we're not as civilized <laughs> as, as sometimes like. And, and I'll tell you, they talk about that too, that there's a pendulum that swings back and forth with developments in time, and that when we get to be that leisure matters more than anything else. You know what I mean? What, what's the usual stuff? Who's making a lot of money? It's um, the entertainers. It's the ball players and the singers and so forth. And everybody else seems to be still in kind of a surf-like grind. Well, that shouldn't be that way, that we all the, whole of the boat should have been raised in a, in a better civilization. And so how do we, whatever we have with wealth inequality, whatever we have with disparities in what's really valuable, you know what I mean? It, it's right. Uh, well, there's no easy solutions, but it sure is that we shouldn't just say, oh, well, we should continually be saying, what could I do about making my world around me a better place that I don't give my money to the people that I think is a ridiculous right. amount to pay? You know, so Elliot and I have that those little things of like, I'm happy to see all of our heroes in our comedy clubs and so forth. And what somebody's like, Bill Burr is going to be at the at, at the um the big stadium. I think it's you know, is it called the Q nowadays, right? Oh, or, no, it's like, Rocket uh, Mortgage now. Rocket Mortgage, exactly that. And like, wow, I love him. I think he's one of the best stand-up comics of our generation. And yet, however many people are going to be there, 20,000, 40,000, the intimacy of being able to see someone's facial expressions in a comedy club, not if they're an ant on stage, because I'm up in row ZZ, <laughs> You know what I mean? And the cost was high, like a hundred bucks. Yeah. Maybe it was like started at 60 and then the scalpers jumped in. And so now you can't get anything for less than 80. And what you can get for 80 is not that great. And so it's like, there are various different people that are kind of priced them themselves out of. I don't want to see them for that much. Yeah. You know what I mean? And as much as we have money, we can do that. It, it still is. There's something just instinctive that says it's not the right venue. It's not the right atmosphere for it. When Bill Burr comes around doing practice for his next um, Netflix or HBO special. And he's going to be at the club because 
Lewis Black has done that, and George Carlin did that, and others. That's what I want to see. Give me the early word about Tom Papa coming. He's getting bigger as he does specials, and who else? John Mulaney. There's all kinds of people that are now getting to that, not only theater, but stadium-level stuff. I don't want to see anybody. I don't want to see. I don't want to see Chris Rock in a stadium. I don't want to. You know, there's really giants of the industry. Jerry Seinfeld in a stadium. I don't. Hey, that's just you not. You need that intimate. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Well, oh well. <laughs> you, you know who figured out this whole money wealth thing? Douglas Adam. Remember, they sent all the telephone sanitizers and other people off world, <laughs> exactly. and when they landed, they that's used right. all the leaves as currency, so they were all rich. Exactly. It totally figured out. They, they made sure that they had their bathtubs and their leisure yes. time things. You know that exactly. That what a great commentary that we're really getting to. And, and there, there's a woman named Faith Popcorn who has written a couple of great books. About, yes. One of, the, one of the, the terms I remember is the affordable luxury that people will really like give up five things they really need to have in their life nutritionally in order to have their Starbucks coffee for five bucks. Their newest iPhone. <laughs> their newest iPhone, their their ice cream that's the premium blend. Like you can get enough rice to feed a family for a week for the same price as what you just spent on that ice cream cone that you just got. And yet people can't give it up because they they don't want to think that their life isn't such that they can afford an ice cream cone or a nice coffee or a steak dinner or whatever else it might be. And so that that idea of affordable luxuries, I think Colleen and I give ourselves some of those things, but not a lot. We don't have pate every night we have pate never our you know cats I mean? have pate more than i do <laughs> let's see like that exactly it's <laughs> i i think that like again it's kind of funny we all our, our discussions often intersect and get spiral and stuff <laughs> one of the things that the fire movement does it's not a formula but it sure makes you aware of what am i trading off when i buy this thing do yes. this thing how do i spend my time and my money so that i can say wow my, my desire to go see more of the world is bigger than any particular meal that I might have. It really is. You know what I mean? At this like, point, yeah. I'm willing to eat a lot of beans and a lot of, I don't even know, like not subsistence level stuff, but I sure don't need to have fine cut pork chops every single meal in order to be, I want to go to see Iguazu Falls on the border of Argentina and Brazil. And whatever I need to do to get yeah. there, worth the trade-off. Our you know oldest. <laughs> he kind of has identity crisis at times, um, but I've had this discussion with him and trying not to be luxury and, and you're doing this wrong type thing, but he quite often he'll get paid. And then uh, within a day or two, he's like, well, I have no money. Why do I never have any money? I'm like, Frankie, because you woke up yesterday morning, you ran all the way into Ravenna, drove your car to buy Taco Bell first thing in the morning. Then you came back home. Then you drove into Meyer to buy batteries because you needed batteries. And then you drove back home. Then for dinner, you drove back into Ravenna and you got um, A&W and then you drove back home. I said, so that's why you have no money because you spent uh, every bit of gas you spent was unnecessary. Number one. Number two, you could have gotten batteries in Ravenna when you got the Taco Bell and you have the other errands. Exactly. Yeah. And, yep. and even pick something up to more. I said, but instead of buying the fast food, if you went to giant Eagle or Aldi's, you could have bought enough food for it to last you a couple of days. Then you wouldn't be driving out. I'm like, you're, I'm like, if that's how you want to choose your, spend your money, that's fine. But you can't then whine and complain to me that you have no money. 
<laughs> I, I'm not going to take both. Um, and, and he even did. He went shopping once a couple of times and said, oh, my God, you're right. I can't believe how much food I bought. But then his other problem is he'll make it and have leftovers. But then like, oh, I don't feel like it. So he ends up throwing them away after a couple of days. So that's half cool. of the food he bought, he threw away because he didn't eat the leftover. And that's not the way to. Yeah, exactly. It, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, I went to college and lived very leanly because what money I earned in my summer jobs and what my parents helped me with half, it was still less than what college cost even back then. And nowadays, I can't imagine what it's like to be spending $20,000 instead of $5,000 on college. But having said that, we, we've laughed about, you know, I really was very, very lucky to have all kinds of good college learning experiences. And one of them was when you have no money, you'll learn to really like, I could get a loaf of bread and a jar of peanut butter and eat for a week for $2 if I had to. And right. every time that I choose not to do that, it's a choice instead of you know, the only thing I can do is go to Taco Bell or to Garcia's Pizza or whatever else it might be. Right. And I had, you find a calendar with coupons in it. And it's like, wow, that's going to be my treats is that each week I get to tear off that Burger King thing and go get get one Whopper with one that you buy. And, well, I don't need to eat two Whoppers as much as I want to because I'm really hungry. If I save one for tomorrow, that's tomorrow's lunch. And then you discover, wow, the whole thing doesn't microwave well. You need to take the lettuce out. Yeah, because but, you know, weird. But, you know. You know what I mean? but it is that I like I whatever I did to make it. And out of pride, not going back to my parents for more money. I was already working multiple jobs, but it just, when you're earning a, a minimum wage job, you know, back then it was $3.55 an hour. It was nowhere near the 15 that we have nowadays. It, it just was, you did what you had to do. Yeah. I had a place to live and a place to sleep that was safe. I was going to school, the most important thing. I made all kinds of sacrifices to make sure I was doing well in my studies and that kind of stuff. And even then, like, well, what's free? I can always go to the library. I can always go to Plato. I can you know, bike around the campus and make little outruns into various different small cities, you find your entertainment without it having to be, wow, right, and right. entertainment doesn't always have to cost money. And, and, and the fire movement, that it's a big mindset thing. I think that's the biggest part of it is mindset because I've tried to, you know, get to the kids. Yeah, it, it, it's like, okay, dad's lecturing again. But I, I tell them, I'm like, okay, look, we all like music. So we have Spotify. Now we have Spotify for the family. So that's six of us. It's $14, $15 a month. That is not outrageous. That's not horrible. No one's going to say, oh, you're going to go broke with that. A person is, is amazingly reasonable. That's yeah. 10 cents a day. That's yeah, really essentially. Good. I'm yeah, like, yeah. but I could take that $14 and over a year, that's almost 200. If I put that 200 towards a car, it pays off faster. And then in the interest, I've saved. $500 in interest just because I didn't have Spotify. I'm like, uh, you know, just trying to get the point across that I can listen to the radio. I can go to the library and check out music. Heck, That's even right. YouTube has just about everything nowadays, it seems. So exactly. it, it, again, it's that mindset. You're choosing to spend your money on Spotify, which means you need to work to pay for that choice of listening to music. If right. you didn't have, if you didn't have Spotify, you wouldn't have to work for it. You didn't have Netflix. You wouldn't have to work for it. If you didn't, you know, so it, it's those choices. If you if you need three thousand dollars a month, you have to have a job where you're making three thousand a month. Whereas if you only need a thousand a month, that's a lot less hard working to get that. That's right. And, and and I don't know everything that you save now. You know, all you have to do is show the little charts about the compound value of money over the course of time. 
that it's, it's so incredibly convincing. One of the, the Rit Like yeah. a Millionaire book, one of the things she really talks about is that there's, there's three ways to become a millionaire. And one of them is, you know, catch lightning in the bottle, be the entrepreneur that really makes a successful business. Another one is to be a really good investor that you actively manage how you're doing it and get better than market returns, if you will. And another is to be an optimizer that you watch your spending and you get the most value that you can in every way and then put everything aside following index funds instead of, and the first two are pretty hard. Not everybody has it in them to be a successful entrepreneur, to have that wonderful, great idea. Not everybody has the combination of smarts, pattern finding, and discipline to be a successful investor to get ahead of the market. 15% of all professional money managers don't beat the market for the year. And you think you're going to. So it's just, you know, worth, but, but being the optimizer is something that everybody can do. They can be aware of where they're spending. They can be, keep that little budget and don't go over the budget. And then the money that you put away in an index fund will guaranteedly, over the course of time, be 6% a year compounded, gives you the, like, you know, that you'll double your money in eight years. You'll double that again in 16 between, you know, starting to work at 18 and getting to like, you name it, 48, 45, 40, 30, depends on how much you keep saving. He was talking about having one year, they had a savings rate of 78%. And most people think of savings as like, I struggle to make it five, maybe 10 is impossible. They really just lived incredibly leanly and put all their money to work. And, and, it, and it really is reproducible. And I'm kind of almost quoting directly from her in the book. The reason that it worked for her is that this wasn't depending on her to be an extraordinary human being except in, I guess, that disciplined way, but you don't have to be ultra smart. You don't have to be ultra lucky. You, you just have to be, I can see the end and I'm not going to get that goal out of my mind that all of these small concessions are worth for the rest of my life. From 31 on, she gets to like travel the world. Yeah. Wow. Well, when, That's when cool. <laughs> I, I showed the kids because we had three of them graduate. Uh, boom, boom, boom. Three years in a row. Okay. Yeah. And when Sarah graduated, she got 800 bucks for graduation from family, mm-hmm. friends and stuff. And I knew it wasn't going to happen, but I, I pointed out to the three of them. I said, look, and I, you know, calculators, if you take this $800 and put it, invest it, do nothing else at age 55, you'll have $58,000. And they're like, oh, well, but I want to get a TV, <laughs> you know? And is. I said, even better, you put this 800 in, and you put $20 in a month, $20, that's it. Nothing outrageous. It went up to like $1.2 million by age uh, 60 or 62. Exactly. Like, you can retire in safety and comfort and so forth. And just by 20 bucks is, I didn't get a pizza. Then. Yeah. I, you know what I mean? I didn't, I didn't get, get two Starbucks coffees. <laughs> I mean, it just it's amazing that sometimes the concessions are so small that you're like, wow, I, I said that out loud and they listened and yet they didn't do it. Right. Oh, that's just so much nothing. Right. Saving 20 bucks is just not hard. But no, but not, yeah, they were 18, yeah. 20. You know, it's not yeah. till they hit 50 that they're going to go, damn, <laughs> like we have a bit. As you might imagine, you know, Colleen, she's down in Mount Vernon today doing enrollment meetings for a, a big company. And she hears from everybody, you know, so you want to do at least, you want, you want to start saving. You want to put money into an investment. You want to put enough so that if the country company has a match, at least put that much in because that's free money. They're right. giving you money on top of your salary for this. And as you get towards what's the maximum that you can put in based on your salary and by your government rules and stuff like that, a lot of people just start to get really shy about, wow, like we said, 8%, that really already hurts. 10%, no way. 
and that you could do like 27% or whatever like that. Once in a while, she'll get that person that really is that disciplined that just says, it's math. I get the math. Let's do this. I will try it. I'll see if I can live within my means. If not, then I'll back off. But if I don't even try it, then I don't even have that sense of um, that long-term goal is worth it. They just automatically, like you said, I need a car, I need a TV, I need new clothes, I need, there sure is a lot of stuff that we all need. And we really do. You can't go, you can't wear threadbare clothing. You can't have an undependable car. Right. But But the treadmill consumption kicks in. (laughs) Right. We've said it before. And the hard thing is uh, getting a credit card, getting that car loan, wanting to get a big house. And then at 30, 35, then saying, okay, I made a mistake. And then trying to back off on all of it. If you start off, well, I don't have any money now, so it's not going to hurt me to put $50 away. And you don't notice it. My, my uh, Colin, he's doing pretty good. He's got like 8,000 saved up in the bank right now. Fantastic. So yeah, you know, he's 22 um, mm-hmm. and he has no credit card. He doesn't have a car payment. He doesn't have a house payment. Um, so and he's really, he, he's like, I don't want a credit card. I don't, if I can't pay cash for it, if I can't save for it. And he did Benjamin something. Benjamin Franklin, maybe. Yeah. They can't do without. That's fantastic. When, when okay. he went to the Chicago uh, Comic-Con, he had a couple things he wanted to get. And he was like texting, showing us. He's like, oh, look, I got this. And it's like, well, how much was that? 750 bucks. It's like, holy crap. He's like, hold on. But it's an this investment. Is, it's money I put aside for yeah. a couple months saving for it. I, he said, I still have money I put in savings and I paid you guys your rent and I bought food. So I've paid all my bills. I also saved money. This is all extra. And yeah, you could say, well, if you had put it in investing, he, that's what he did, but he also enjoyed it. So, right. you know, I think he'll do a little better than I have in life with that. So. Well, I'll tell you, it's not zero to a hundred. You know what I mean? It really is whatever that happy medium is. And for some people, unfortunately, they tend down to that really low, like 10 to 20% instead of, can you even pursue getting to 50? If you really can save that amount of money, it's amazing how much that mounds up yeah. quickly. You know what I mean? And, and in good markets and bad. And in over the course of time, the market always corrects. You know, some, some people, they, they invest and oh my God, the market goes down and they lose 30%, 50%. It really is possible. And then that makes them shy about the market for the rest of their life. But that's the whole thing, I guess, you know, the, the, the performance over the course of time is almost a guaranteed thing. Every pattern since the great yeah. depression to now. And you just kind of have to, like, I, I, I made <laughs> money the last three days after watching my stuff fun. You know what I mean? I hit a high back in February of last year and then kind of had a, a just a, a straight across year after my initial making 200 300%. I was as high as 233 at one point up in like two and a half years, which is kind of amazing. You know what I mean? To beat the market at 6%, 8, 12, 25%. I was well ahead of that. Well, then as happens, the market says, well, that's over. We're going to have you be kind of even and then plunge, but I haven't had to sell anything off. One of the things that Fire talks about is the worst thing you can do when you have set up that system is to have to sell when the market is down. So you do things to cushion yourself against that. You have cash. You have things that have a slightly higher yield that you ladder so that always there will be the cash you need to live on without having to bail out when the big assumption about things ever going upwards is wrong for that year, that two years, whatever else it might be. And they've been able to do that. They weathered like 2008, which was the last time we had a huge correction. Correction is such a uh, gentle term for (laughs) people jumping off buildings because they lost all their money. You know what I mean? People (laughs) out of their houses. You know what I mean? It, it, and 
and luckily I'm I'm Owen and I are um doing fine in that regard that we have I've been able to weather this entire downturn without having to say, well, we time to sell some off because we have to eat. We still have money coming in and and it's, it's, um, I don't know. I, the other thing that you and I understand with the whole fire movement is they highly encourage you to do some entrepreneurship. If you have a job, keep your job, but have a side gig, have a side business, have some other income streams, because what right. if you lose your job? What if you get hurt? You need something else. And you know, you and I have that mindset. I know it, it's difficult with my wife. She doesn't have that mindset and she doesn't get the, because she'll say, well, did you get paid for doing that? Well, no, but it's part of an overall thing and it's building to this other thing. Well, how yeah. long is that going to take? Uh, I'm not sure, you know. Yeah, it's uncertain, but it's, yeah. One of the things the book talks about very well is, if you're having to continually be thinking of optimizing your salary because that's your source of income and, and, and that's where you're going to use to live off of, it's a different thing than saying, I already have my living expenses kind of covered. Like theirs is 40000 a year. You know, when they looked at their budgets and over the course of time, that seemed to be a pretty good average and no deprivation. That really was them living well. Well, the market goes down and instead of being able to take out 40 k you can only take out 35 Well, then what you need to do is just make 5 k from a side hustle, not... 40k, not 120k, not you know what your former salary was when you were a practicing coder for you know what I mean, a, right. a, a, an engineering firm. So it's it's the incrementalism, if you will, that says I'm not deprived when I'm just down 5k. I can easily kind of make that up by getting a part time job, returning to my old job as a consultant, uh, learning a still, new skill. Still, you know some I mean? things <laughs> you hear about people doing sometimes you and you laugh, but people not vagrant hobos or anything they go through the trash cans and pull out aluminum cans take them in yeah i might only be getting a couple bucks didn't cost me anything or the the kids that uh go diving in the pool at the golf course pull up the balls and then resell them (laughs) you know or or tell the manager we'll do that when you can have them back but it's gonna cost you this much there i think we have so many opportunities sometimes but we've been almost trained to not recognize it all the time. You know, our neighbors have a garden and they put up and sell vegetables. I don't think they're ever getting rich doing that, but it's kind of nice to end the weekend with an extra $30, $40 in your pocket. Because they didn't have to buy the cucumbers and the carrots and the way exactly that. I mean, that we, Colleen and I have talked about that often as uh, it would be nice to have fresh herbs, fresh vegetables. So that's kind of why we're going to do it. But in some ways it's like, wow, if I didn't have to go to Costco and spend that 20 bucks on lettuce, cubed peppers to make our salad, I'd love to have the salad coming in for free from outside. That'd right. be cool. And everything, you know, even brighter, even less travel time on it. You know what I right. mean? I just pick this pepper off. Plus, <laughs> you get you get the side benefit if you do your own garden. I mean, we have enough room. We've done a garden. We've got barrels out that we've been doing some gardening in. So you have that side benefit of you're outside in the sun, you're getting fresh air or as fresh as you can get, a uh, mm-hmm. little exercise. So the health benefits it reduces your stress. Those aren't as quantifiable, but over time can make a big difference. The problem is you never really know it. You don't know if, well, I had a heart attack at 62. Well, if you hadn't been gardening, you might've had it at 55, <laughs> you know, and you ne- you'll exactly. never, never know. Yeah. That- that's an overall thing. Just, I don't know, uh, all of those lifestyle things, how can I do it without adding stress? You know what I mean? Like a lot of this is 
being more secure in your money absolutely is a de-stressor. You know what I mean? I, I just read an interesting article about stress isn't what kills you, but it is the ongoing, no end in sight, yeah. no making it better stress that really just floods you with cortisol and you're continually in that weird fight or flight panic mode. Uh, a challenge that you can overcome is actually really good for you. It, it, it gives you confidence. It, 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 the way your body handles cortisol and adrenaline and so forth, when it's, I was able to overcome this, it does all the right things for your, your physiology that you actually get less stressed in the overcoming of that. So it's taking the tasks that are like, wow, I, I don't want to be continually in my house saying, I don't have enough money, I don't have enough money. And that low level stress will kill you. Whereas every time you go out and say, I didn't have enough money. So I um, worked at the library shelving books overnight. I'm a night owl. And you know I didn't make that much money. But instead of just saying, woe is me, the, the act of like, the first step of a journey, all those nice sayings that we have about, you know, get off your butt. Doing anything is better than doing nothing. Adjust your course, be a missile instead of a bullet. You know what I mean? <laughs> and honestly, with if you have a computer and an internet connection and you can't figure out a side hustle to do sitting in your chair at your computer, you've got a problem in, in our country, at least. You know, I, I know people and and I know people have said, well, there's pl people in areas where they can't afford computers. I'm like, I get that. But I've seen some of these people that are on welfare that are this, and they're carrying a $1,000 smartphone, or they're, they're two blocks away from a library. Every single library has computers. And I, I mean, I know, I know people say, well, that's white privilege talking, and you think, it, but go, there's libraries in every that. city in the country. And you, if you look, you will find those inspirational stories. Well, you know, we would have to lay on the floor because of bullets riddling through our house. But I got and went to the library every weekend and I did this. And now I'm in this position in my life. Right. I know it's not an easy thing. And I know I never had to do that. I understand it. But that opportunity does exist. Exactly. I'll tell you. Another thing that we've been talking about is you know, we're, so we're planning on doing travel. And I don't want to be the white privilege asshole. So I, I kind of want to be, I don't want to have money hanging out of my pockets, please right. with me. The way the world is now is that you don't have to be that way at all. If you have your cell phone, you have access to Mercado Libra in, the, in South America and Central America. You have, there's multiple ways to do it that the world is bypassing all the bullshit of cash and currency exchanges and hiding money under a mattress. And as long as you have a phone that with your password, it doesn't help they might steal it because they want to sell the phone, but they can't steal your wealth. They can't right. steal what you've accumulated in your life. And so I hope that people, there sure is a lot of uh, uh, wonderful TED Talks and things about how we're making the world better in a thousand different ways in terms of they no longer have to be burned dung for fuel. Now we have, you know, a little solar converter that's powering a village and about how to purify water and make food better and how to have economic opportunity created in ways that it's not a matter of uh, a big bank or the drug lords you know, loaning you money like the mafia at 40% interest and whatever else it might be. The world is changing in all kinds of better ways. And it is, there's all, it, it isn't, um, there's all kinds of people that are taking advantage of that, that are successful, that are good success stories, if you will. And that the people that look at that and decide not to do it, it, it isn't only a matter of deprivation and woe is me. It really is, wow, a very active choice to say, I want to be taken care of. I want to get something for nothing. This is, this is, 
I've also seen studies that say the difficulty of getting yourself out of poverty is, is horrendous. You have to make it like to age 18 without having made any mistakes, without having had a single disaster in terms of a bad disease or a car breaking down or whatever, to get to where you can actually get above the poverty line. And that's here in the United States. And I can't imagine what it's like yeah. in other countries where it still is subsistence farming and having to walk to get water because there's no public water and all that. And yet the whole world is still working on it. Yes. So and, let's, and let's enable them. So many of my investments are there. I want the world yes. to be a better place. You know what I mean? There, so. There's so many stories of countries where these people were making $6 a month, you know, equivalent of what we, or, and, and barely living. But I, I've, and I know Bill Gates has uh, done some work with some of this and others, but the one thing that has changed is they can get a cell phone for less than, you know, $10 or whatever. And they're running businesses, worldwide global businesses from a cell phone and Absolutely. it's changing their lives. And I'm not saying it's everybody. Again, I understand it's not solving every problem, but that didn't exist five years ago, 10 years ago. And it's happening. A, a big shout out here. My, my parents discovered, wow, probably 30 years ago, maybe Heifer International. And we all sons often gave Christmas gifts of this to other family members. It's a place where it says, in order to get yourself out of poverty, if you give a family a goat, it really does give them the um, fleece, if that's the right term for being able to make clothing. It gives them milk. It gives them goat meat. Eventually, it you give them beehives. You give them various different natural things that fit into their lifestyle. It's not like, thanks for the cell phone, but I, I don't even have like things right. to find. You know exactly, what I mean? Exactly, yes. And, but, but having said that, it really is in in honor of my father that's what i've asked is anybody who wants to you know do a donation don't send flowers do that kind of thing it isn't only about honoring my father except boy that's a path for a lot of the world if it really is that this community can get together and somebody has the goat and somebody has the bees and somebody has the the seed that's going to allow them to grow their first crop and you get barter and then cash and then the community grows and that kind of stuff it seems a little Pollyanna, but it's not if it's really working. It, it's, it really is that here's where they've reclaimed land, that they've made into arable land, and they found ways to make sure that it wasn't getting eaten by vermin, that it wasn't <laughs> that the, the elephants weren't rampaging through, that they that they were safe and it wasn't too close to the swamp where the alligators are crocodiles, depending on where you are. Mosquitoes. You know I mean? Like there are ways to. Get ahead and not, if not only yourself, you're always thinking of how do I make things better for my children, for the next generation? I'm going to work a lot to make sure that my child doesn't have to do this, that I want them to get educated, that I want them to go to the big city or whatever else it might be. And technology is in many ways enabling that to happen. Yeah. That just like you said, five years ago, 10 years ago, it wasn't even available. So I, I, when I watch my TED talk, find out there's a better way to, um, uh, you can correct people's eye problems in a very inexpensive way. They just have to have a clinic that's going to do that for tens of thousands of people. And then th that really happens. Some, some wonderful selfless doctors and nurses put together this thing. And all of a sudden this river blindness or uh, glaucoma or whatever is affecting them. It's so much smaller of a problem in a public health way. And it just, it, it's, wow. it's, it's a, it's a, it's like one of, the, <laughs> one of the overall problems. And it, I don't know if it's a human thing or if it's our American culture and civilization, I don't know which it is, but there's a very, I think it's a lot 
in our country, but it's very much a lot of thinking of reacting instead of being progressively active against something. For example, uh, I'm reading the first Reacher book by Lee Child, which there's my book shout out for the week, Reach uh, Killing Floor by Lee Child, uh, because the show was so good. Um, The style of the book is interesting. I I could talk about that in a second. But one of the things, um, now I lost my train of thought. What was I talking about? See Reacher. Um, wow, I don't know where you're going. Um, yeah, I don't know. Well, I, yeah. I, you know what? If, if I remember it, I'll come back to it. But okay, um, it, it had to do with that. But the uh, the Reacher book itself, we'll, we'll digress to a whole new topic. It, it'll come back to you. It, <laughs> yes. it, okay, right. It's interesting because um, the word the word choices he makes are like two and a half cent words. He rarely ever uses a five, let alone a 10 or a 50 cent word. He really is very economical in what he does. And I was looking, I'm like, the largest sentence is like seven words. It's mostly four and five word sentences. Very short uh, in that. And it's interesting because when we were watching this, you know what I mean? Yeah. Very, very, okay. Yeah. very, And it's not a lot of flowery description, not a lot of of turn of phrase or anything like that. It's very... Uh, dry, cut and dried almost, and tells what's going on. But it's an action thriller, so it fits well. Uh, and I'm actually enjoying it. And it's very much what we were talking about. Oh, okay. I'm just going to read a little more. It's a short chapter. Oh, there's a cliffhanger. <laughs> I got to read more. Exactly. So I, I've never read uh, Reacher books. Uh, I've tried lots of other thrillers, and this is really the first in the thriller genre that I'm really like. I love this book. Wonderful. So there's my book shout out. I also have very good. I've not read those. And that another, you know, like, hey, thanks for that. And I remember right, there's already like 10, 20 in the series. So 27. Like 27. And so his brother I, is writing them now. It's not daunting. That's wonderful. You know yeah. what I mean? Well, I have 20 of those to look forward to. It's, I think I might have mentioned from last time. Here's my shout out. Um, the guy, Ace Atkins, who took over writing one of the um, Spencer series that yes. Robert B. Parker had been doing, Spencer in particular. And, I, and um, he also has a series about Quinn Colson. Um, uh, a returned vet that becomes the sheriff of a small town in a relatively corrupt town in upstate Mississippi, if I remember correctly. And I guess similarly, they're they're sparsely written, um, not florid prose. They're very action packed, but it, they're very good about um, people. Even just regular people are complex. You don't always know why somebody does something. There's multiple motivations and corruptions and and graces that people have. And so there's always surprises in trying to figure these things out, that it's not the murder mystery of who did it only. It's, well, why would they have done that? That doesn't seem characteristic of them. And who's behind them that would have pushed them or that would have, you right. know what I mean? They're very so, engaging I, I like story. The, yeah, they're very intriguing in terms of the, the town is opening to you. It's flowering as you learn more and more about the characters and the generations and how a lot of people are suffering for the sins of their fathers. You know what I mean? And that when are you going to make the break? When are you going to say, I don't have to be the same drunk my dad was or whatever else it might be. So there, I, um, Ace Atkins, the Quinn Colson books are really good. There's there you go. Good, this week. good stuff. Exactly. Okay. So before we go, uh, let me give you a quick update on uh, my programming challenges that I've been working on. Okay. <laughs> so first of all, I did finally get a new laptop. Uh, and it has Windows 11 on it, and it's very nice. It's like a quarter of the weight of my whole laptop. It's very light. <laughs> very good. Um, so I'll see how that goes. But in a, a very exciting to me is not on my Windows machine, on my Fedora 
laptop, I got Cordova figured out without errors, without problems. And better yet, I used VMware to build a, a Fedora VM that I also had it on there and it works and I can make Cordova and compile and build and push it out to Android. I got to get it set up. So I can... the whole point of Cordova is that it's multi-platform that you can really yes. write once and then compile into various different environments. To, yes. to give you Okay. Very good. And it's a little outdated and they're even saying, um, you know, they, they're changing to progressive web apps and things. I'm like, okay, that's fine. This does what I want right now. And a few things I I'm playing with, but I am also taking some of my other development tools and putting them into uh, VMs, whether it's Linux or uh, another Windows VM or something like that, okay. uh, because then I can go on my laptop and pull it up and I'm right there. So I can sit anywhere on my desktop. I get a new machine. It's all still on the VM. I, I'm transitioning exactly to a lot of the programming stuff. And so I'm very happy I got the Cordova working on Fedora. Fantastic. Uh, and that's, that's one of the most, to me, one of the most impressive feats of the last, let's say, 20 years of coding is that whole virtual machine, the VM thing that you're talking about. Yeah. The fact that they've been able to do emulation of entire other chipsets, entire other operating systems using, I use Parallels, but VMware, fantastic. And I think it even supports more platforms and so forth. And it's just so cool to be, I, there was a time when I had my Mac in my Windows box and I had multiple partitions on my Windows box that I, I did all my testing in various different yeah. environments yep. and on different browsers and all that kind of stuff to see what was going to break in ways you didn't expect because things just weren't perfect. They just weren't. And nowadays you can really do that all from one box. You can create all kinds of virtual environments and have like a big checklist of, well, how far am I willing to go back? Here's Windows 11, 10, 9. What, what, was there ever Windows 9? Anyway, you know what I mean? I'm like, no, it went 8 to 10. <laughs> I think it went 8 to 10. That's what I'm saying. You know, it, I, how far am I willing to invest my own time into making sure that even people who are like, I'm just not switching off 95. I just, I, that's my favorite window. It's like, well, man, then you get to have the, the, the 16 crayon version of programs instead of the 64. Right. Android. Because, you know, all the different versions. And I know people still like on an iPhone six and they're on what, 11 or 12 now. So you you can't stop supporting some of the old stuff, which has always been the case. You know, I mean, there's still people out there with COBOL running because that's what they've had. Except you kind of can like, if if I'm thinking about my time, like if I just say the, the compatibility level of this, and I don't know, you can declare that now that they have the metadata that goes with various different installations you really can say this will not run on a machine that has at least these specs, yes. at least this operating system. And someone will read that and say, well, damn it, I wanted to use that greeting card program, but it doesn't work on my machine. I'm hoping that when they get three dammits, that things they really want to use stop working on their old thing. They'll finally get rid of the steam-powered computer and move up to something right. that's more modern. Well, what you I know? really want to do, and they, <laughs> I think they still offer this with VMware, is my current desktop machine I want to suck it down into a VM. That way, when I get a new machine and move into, I can have everything right there until I transition everything over. That's right. To always have a place to retreat to instead of here I go crossing the Rubicon. Now I'm really, you know, and having said, wow, I, I really, I have done things where I really always code to existing standards and I try to make the, I, I do everything they say I should, isolating IO and stuff like that. There's like a Mac parts game that started off on like, Mac OS 6, and we're up to like 15 now, 
and it continues to run. And just think of the, the tightness of that code that he really followed all the rules that he just didn't. And I guess, you know, of course, it's a, a, a much less environment. There's no internet associated with your Mac Hearts game. It's you on the machine, not going out for other players. But that's there's all kinds of things that broke for no good reason yeah. that I could tell that were various other games or word processes or whatever else it might be. What a testament to this guy created the the um the the teach text of the world where it just doesn't stop running. Right. It's very cool to see the, something that's an artifact well, like that, you know. <laughs> I, I think uh Doom has been ported to just about every system that's ever been made since '93. Right. And, and I I have an investment in Unity. Um, which is, you know, that, that I'm programming um, in Unity for you. <laughs> fantastic. Early on, games had to learn all of these tough lessons. You really had to be aware of what graphics card they had, what system they were on, what what resolution their screen could, you know, they had to do all kinds of stuff where they checked it for you and then said, what we suspect is the optimum environment for you is this. You can push it to this and see if your screen works. So games had to become really good about that. Unity was one of the first places that said it's not only a matter of the installer that checks all that. We'll give you a known, good, working class library, a known working environment that's going to work 80% of the places that you might want to be going, and we'll maintain backwards compatibility as well as working with the most modern freaking stuff you can find. And it's no wonder that now they're doing really well for everybody wants to use it because who doesn't want to write once and code to six, uh, compile to six different environments, not have to do all the I.O. weirdness of, well, this is different than I expected. Uh, anyway, <laughs> a lot of the lytics, that's kind of the claim they, they try and put out, but it's not the reality as much anymore. There's there's a lot of uh, modern. I mean, they've got the same issues on Linux that Mac and Windows, you know, butt up against. Uh, right. And the worst thing, I think, and this is something I want to talk about maybe next week, you know, the user interface. Uh, just trying to get things running sometimes on Linux is pull your hair out. I literally have spent probably days worth of time on my Linux machine in the last two months to get Cordova running because things have changed. So I'm, I don't have a support person to call. I look things up online and it's too old. So that doesn't help. Well, you know, it's just all sorts of issues. <laughs> I hear you. You know, to, to reference back to something you said about your cool new laptop, it's so small, so thin compared to everything you've had in the past. One of the most impressive demos I ever saw, you know, Steve Jobs, gone, used to always be, he'd do the big Apple, um, either at the Worldwide Developers Conference or at Macworld, the big reveal of what's coming out that year. And would often, a whole bunch of stuff, you know, here's the progression in the Mac OS and that kind of stuff. And then the big reveal, of course, would be the, always at the very end, the, oh, and one more thing. And he came like out Columbo. With, like, I guess, exactly. He came out with a manila envelope, like the one that has a little clasp on it that you put the string around. Yeah. It's like, well, what's this? The first Mac Air was in there. It fit into a manila envelope looking as if there was nothing in it. How cool is that? That they had made the entire row of all the various different connectors so thin and that the, it, it, it was like, this is the future. He's holding the future in his hands. Remember, I we go back to Compaq, where it was carrying around a sewing machine <laughs> and, a, and, a, and a screen that like this big that you yeah, had a little green cord. And to see that kind of stuff happening in our lifetime, that the first time you held an iPhone, that it wasn't just a flip phone, it had a screen. It was an actual computer. The future is here. And the first MacBook Air, where it's just, and now they're getting to where like, well, I'm just going to hold my screen and put it in my pocket. 
What? what, what? Yeah. You get a full glass? I'm just loving seeing the next miracle come along. And I'm not enough of a tech fetishist that I have to have the latest and greatest. It, it, but my hat is off when I see cool that enough it to see it. Exists. Exactly. It's just the coolest thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay. All right. So before we go, I got we trivia. We went long today. I know. Oh boy. Yeah, that's okay. <laughs> I got trivia. You you got one, or you just uh, want to hear it? I'll just hear it. I don't know. Okay. All right. You might know this one. Okay. Uh, approximately how many words did Shakespeare invent that are in the English language today? And I say approximately because yeah. what I the, what I heard was this is the exact number, and I'm like, eh, I'm not sure if I believe that, so I'll say approximately. So I, I think I've seen a reference where it wasn't words, but it was phrases that are in our language, you know. And so I know it's hundreds. How about three hundred? Three hundred words is your final answer. Sure, I'm close <laughs> for the daily double. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> According to this, and I tried to find a dispute, uh, and I didn't, uh, right. there are 1,700 words in the English language that Shakespeare invented. Now, I would love to hear if somebody has something different, because that sounded right. really crazy to me. Because Here's what I would say. It's a tricky question, because him being him popularizing the words doesn't necessarily mean that he created them. That's true. And especially, like I said, if, uh, when I include phrases in there, they, they have whole T-shirts that are filled with, you know, something wicked this way come or, or knock on wood or, you know what I mean? Things that we really do use that, that I, I read somewhere that if you want to just know about human nature, read the Bible and read Shakespeare, you cover about 90%. Right. And it's not only the, the words he used, but just the, the situations that he put people in about what really drives them. What, what anyway, I, I kind of want to believe it because he really was one of the mass popularizers. If it wasn't him, who would it have been? But there's people that are really good at, they hear it in a pub, and then they kind of, by it being um, so popular because of his plays went everywhere, it can be attributed to him. Yeah. If he really come up with behold, or whatever the word, I'm like I'm trying to think, what's a, do you have an example of one of the words that he created? Oh, like man. Ambigans? Like, did he make ambigans and then Simpson stole it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll look that up. I'll, I'll have something okay. next week. Send me a link to the article because I'd love to read about that because I love that kind of scholarship. You know, the we, we have a copy of the OED, Oxford English Dictionary. And for those who don't know, the cool thing about it is it tries to track back for every word in the English right. language the first time it appears in print. And by saying we have a copy of the OED, we have it where it's on tiny, tiny print. You actually need a magnifying glass because, as you might imagine, there's lots of words in the English language and it trying to trace back to where really was it first used in anywhere in, in Shakespeare in Dickens, really in thin Oscar, tissue paper like pages. That. It's, it, yeah. it's one of the things you put on the book pedestal if you're really trying to show off right. so everybody knows you have an OED. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? I got it for, for Colleen for her birthday one year. Nice. I don't know that we make use of it, but it's just very cool to have it in the house in case I wanted to look up. Um so uh someone had to come up with uh uh let's see um you know who first used that term right you know what i mean and and, and I'd, be, I'd be really curious like it's got kind of like some latin roots so someone put it together but someone first wrote that out and made it a word and, and it's kind of interesting, interesting you know? where some of them come from and how they change through time too yes i i, I read this you know that the word with the most dictionary definition separate distinct is put that apparently it's got like hundreds of definitions because 
it really does have multiple uses, multiple contacts and stuff huh. like that. And for such a, a little teeny word, like off the top of my head, it really is, well, it's, you know, to put something down or to put someone in their place or to, it's a, a call or a put or it's, you know what I mean? <laughs> right. That's it. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> uh, I'll look that up because I, I really want to find out a little more about that. But there we go. That was yeah, what I I'm, got. I'm not always conscious that I need to be collecting good trivia and stuff like that. But uh, that's a, uh, uh, yeah, I'm trying to, you know, let's, uh, I w- we're already late. Thank you so much Ooh. for your trivia. I, I'm, any, anything about Shakespeare is cool because he really was a giant. Yes. I mean? Amazing. All right, man. All right. Take care. Steve. Later. Have a good week. Fine. You okay. have been listening to the Relentless Geekery podcast. Come back next week and join Alan and Stephen's conversation on geek topics of the week. <laughs>